Welcome to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast, where we explore the exciting science behind heart rate variability. The material discussed in this podcast should not be taken as medical advice. Please check with your medical provider to make sure any suggestions or strategies are right for you. Visit us at the OptimalHRV.com website to learn more about the Optimal HRV app, download a free copy of Matt's book, Heart Rate Variability, and also get show notes and additional resources around heart rate variability and its applications. Computer. All right. Hello, this is Dr. Dave Hopper, and tonight we are going to be joined with my student who was here with us before, and this is Randy, Randy Grittner. And um, he is over at National University of Health Sciences. Um, and Randy, you're a, a third, fourth try right now, correct? Third try right now. Hi, everyone. All right. And uh, and last time Randy and I talked, we um, we unfortunately had to end a little bit early, and uh, and we did not get to completely uh, finish what we were talking about. So I would like to pick up where we left off, but I. Uh, but for those of you who are not able to listen, uh, go back just a couple of episodes and, uh, and you should be able to find that recording with Randy and uh, as well, Alicia was on that episode too. Um, and, uh, and listen to that, but I'm going to have Randy do a quick recap of what we talked about last time, and then we will dive in a little bit deeper. So the stage right. is yours. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Randy. I'm back again for another episode. Dr. Dave here was super kind to let me back on the show, and uh, it's an honor being here, uh, getting to talk about this, and I enjoy this so much, so this is a privilege to be able to do. Um, so yeah, definitely go check out that last episode, like you said, because um, there's going to be a lot of stuff I'm going to recover here, a couple things I need to um, re amend and reset and restate, but um, just to give a recap now, uh, what we talked about last time was the the way the autonomic nervous system functions to control heart rate variability from a physiological perspective. So I've really enjoyed talking, like looking at the research that we've been doing from a physiology perspective and even like a neurology perspective, because that's what I love the most. And it really intrigues me out of everything we've been researching. So the autonomic nervous system, of course, is made up of sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous systems within that general umbrella. Um, so I started with the vagus nerve last time. I think I'm going to start with the sympathetics this time, talk a little bit of that, about that, and then go back to parasympathetics. Um, and I'm going to start uh, with the thing that I messed up last time before I forget. So last time I talked about uh, HCN channels, and somewhere in my search, I think it got messed up, and I ended up saying cyanide channels, which was completely inaccurate. Um, cyanide does affect heart rate, and all of that when you're uh, going through cyanide toxicity, but that's not related to what I was mentioning. Um, HCN actually stands for hyperpolarization activated cyclic nucleotide channels, HCN, and they're directly um, responsive to cyclic AMP or cyclic GMP in some cases, but mostly AMP. And that's how we modulate the depolarization effect via the sympathetic inputs. So like I said, starting with sympathetics, we got all of our higher cortical areas. Uh, I mentioned this last time. 
we got our hypothalamus, we got our uh, solitary tract when it comes to the parasympathetics, but all of these play an intricate role. So I'll just list them all real quick. Um, you also have your prefrontal cortex and your cingulate gyrus, the amygdala. Um, I think they even threw in some thalamus there too, just as the relay center for all of these inputs. Um, and all of these work together to form the nervous system as it controls the heart, which is what we're looking at here. So these sympathetic inputs are coming from those higher cortical areas, traveling through the hypothalamus as the marking point. And then that goes down through the brainstem and out into the sympathetic plexus. And then that plexus gives off the individual branches to the heart. So they all take their different paths, but they end up in the heart. And similar to the vagus nerve, as we'll get to in a little bit, those sympathetic nerves are gonna hit the sinoatrial node. And all of these autonomics are gonna converge on this one point because that's the pacemaker of the heart. And uh, Dr. Dave, do you have anything to add about that before I get too much deeper? No, you're doing an awesome job with that. Uh, and and I just, I love how you're putting that together. And we can imagine that all there's all these different parts of our brain and they're all just doing this perfect little intricate dance and it's a balancing system, right? And then it tosses down and boom, we shoot on over to the heart. And, uh, and as you're saying, we wind up at the sinoatrial node, which for those of you um, listening, that is going to be uh, essentially the, the primary control center of our heart rate. Um, so that, Randy, I'll let you jump back in there. No, for sure. Um, and I'm sure your audience knows, but uh, Dr. Dave here teaches head and neck. He was the best head and neck anatomy professor. Um, and so I'll go back to him frequently for all the anatomy things I might not get quite straight. Um, I did pay attention in class though. I did pay attention. <laughs> yes, I, I know your grade showed it. <laughs> yeah. Um, anywho, right? Sinoatrial node. Uh, autonomics converge on that one point. It's the pacemaker of the heart. And um, the key channels that I'll talk about then are going to be the HCN channels, not cyanide channels, but the HCN channels. And those are going to be how we modulate the depolarization effect in this node. So the sympathetics work to speed up the heart rate. They work to um, increase blood pressure. Um, and they work to um, fight or flight response. Anything that has to do with fight or flight, quick reactivity is gonna be the sympathetics. So heart's pounding, that's sympathetic activity. Parasympathetic, rest and digest, is gonna relax the heart, dilate the blood vessels, and um, slow down heart rate. So when we look at HRV, then we're looking at parasympathetic, sympathetic balance. And it makes sense then physiologically, which is what intrigues me so much, how all of these converge on that single node. So we can see how all these functionally are put together. So the HCN channels then are going to function in a responsive way to the parasympathetic oscillations that are produced by the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve continually provides input and I'll leave it at that. It's just gonna oscillate and give us consistent inputs. The sympathetics are going to respond to these inputs via HCN channels, which are gonna open up and allow ions to recirculate and uh, depolarize the, the uh, membrane. So HCN responds to vagus, and these vagal oscillations are going to hyperpolarize the membrane, thus hyperpolarization, um, activated cyclic nucleotide channels, HCN channels. And so as those work to depolarize, uh, we get an increase in contraction, contractility, 
because that depolarization is going to cause the myofibers to contract and all those sarcomeres are going to clamp together real tight and uh, cause that ventricular contraction that we know and love. Um, so as that sympathetic, sorry. I'm going to pause you real quick, Randy. Uh, so, um, so you, you said, uh, you said a couple of things in there, uh, that I do want to highlight and make sure that everybody's understanding. Um, so when you talk about the vagus nerve oscillating as the, as the parasympathetic uh, input to the heart there, um, with those oscillations, um, for those of you who are frequent listeners, um, that is, uh, that is driven by the breath, uh, with the respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which is something that we've talked about, uh, in here before. Um, so, so those sympathetic inputs are going to, are, are going to be allowed essentially to, uh, to ride in at a higher rate when that vagus nerve backs off with the breath. Um, and, and that's particularly with the inhale. Um, now, uh, then you mentioned the word sarcomere and, uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who say, well, what is that? Um, that's so, a good point there. Yeah. so when we talk about a sarcomere, we're talking about a muscle, yeah. uh, contracting and, um, and that is going to be uh, specific here to cardiac muscle. Uh, we're talking about within the heart. Um, and when those are, when those are contracting, uh, so, uh, please, uh, please go ahead. I just want to make sure that we clarified on oh. a couple of those points. Perfect clarification. Um, I always appreciate the clarification because I'll get running and start spitting out all these crazy terms that I've been reading on. Um, so yeah, please stop me whenever. Um, so yeah, sarcomeres are going to be those contraction, um, the contraction portion of the cardiac muscle fibers. And there's also going to be intercalated discs mixed in there. So I'll touch on this real quick too. But once we get into the Perkin J fiber area, which are just the nervous fibers that carry that signal from the sinoatrial node to the ventricles, to get that contraction, those are going to connect and relay the signal via intercalated discs, which are made up of gap, gap junctions and desmosomes. And that's all the histology stuff. Um, I like histology too. Uh, I tutor it, it's so much fun, I love it. So that's what those intercalated discs are gonna do. And that's gonna carry that signal to the ventricles. My point in saying that is that that signal carrying is gonna allow for a delay in contraction. So sympathetic speed up heart rate, right? Sinoatrial node pacemaker. As that sends the signal through these channels I've been talking about, it's gonna delay a bit. So we're gonna have a delay between atrial contraction, ventricular contraction, so that physiologically the blood can make its way into the atria. Atria contracts first, which is where the sinoatrial node is located closest to. And then those atria contract, pump the blood into the ventricles, and then that leads, that happens at about the time that the uh, signal is carried into the ventricles. So it all works in this concert mechanism. So the, atrials can, the atria contract, uh, blood is sent, sent into the ventricles, and then the ventricles contract by the time that the signal actually reaches those uh, muscle fibers. So then the ventricles contract and we get blood flow. So that's the overview. Looking deeper, as we do in HRV, um, sympathetics are going to regulate this, the speeding up. And then as Dr. Dave mentioned, Vagal oscillations are going to be the key here, uh, and that's the parasympathetics. So I'm going to move to the parasympathetics now. That was mostly sympathetics with the HCN channels, um, but I'm going to get into parasympathetics now so we can see the other side of the coin. So the vagus nerve is the key innervator of the heart and the muscle and all the um, tissues in between. So the vagus nerve is going to insert on that sinoatrial node, and that's going to enact its um, affection via the GERC channels, um, 
the GERC proteins that I mentioned last time, and that stands for G coupled, G protein coupled um, intrinsically rectifying channels. Um, and then the K stands for potassium channels. So GERC channels, G-I-R-K channels. Uh, and those are gonna be what the vagus nerve um, inputs onto. They are G coupled proteins. And that means that they have the protein that does the seven uh, figure loop in and out of the cell membrane. So as the vagus nerve puts the neurostimulation in that protein, it's going to detach a heterotrimer into a hetero heterodimer and a single G alpha subunit. And those subunits are going to go out and do their own physiological effects. Um, so that's what a G-coupled protein does, is that G-coupling has those different um, monomers, which form the tri, the tri, sorry, let me step back. So the G-coupled protein has that G protein, has those subunits. That stands as a heterotrimer, just three monomers really put together. And then that's going to disassociate, and they're going to have different physiological responses. So the beta and gamma heterodimer that gets separated off of that heterotrimer, that's going to go and act physically physiological responses that are actually a lot quicker. So that's gonna be the fast acting um, part of the G-coupled protein. And I'm gonna pull up a study here that explains it very well and uh, quote from that. But while I'm doing that, the alpha subunit is gonna go, go ahead and go off and activate cyclic AMP, um, adenylyl cyclase, producing adenylate cyclic, or cyclic AMP. Excuse me, I'm mincing my words and it's been a long day, so let me <laughs> You're do trying to look to something up and talk at the same time. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a test for sure. But that cyclic AMP is going to be produced by adenylocyclase as the G alpha subunit goes and activates that. And what we see there is an actual increase in contraction. And why is that? Because those HCN channels that I mentioned, hyperpolarization, cyclic nucleotide, cyclic AMP adenosyl um, monophosphate is the full AMP um, name. So that adenosyl group is a nucleotide, so that's where we get the cyclic nucleotide channel. Explanation aside, it, that cyclic AMP is going to cause those HCN channels to activate, and then that's where we get the vagal break that we talk about in HRV. So the vagus nerve, quote-unquote, releases its oscillation effect on the heart. So it's a lack of inhibition, which causes an increase in heart contraction. So to restate that another way, because it's confusing and takes forever to get that straight in my own head, um, vagus nerve is going to be an inhibiting the sympathetics in the heart. It's going to be inhib inhibiting the muscle contraction at a steady, like fast rate. So that's how it enacts its effect to lower the heart rate. And then through that, the vagal break is when the vagus nerve stops and the sympathetics are allowed to increase the contraction speed. Did I say that right, Dr. Dave? So it's, um, it, I, I it it, you had a, so as the vagal break, uh, the vagal break is when it is inhibiting. Um, so, so as we're pulling off that vagal break is when, uh, is when the sympathetics are allowed to come in. Um, essentially. And that's, um, you know, for people with a proper, a proper function, uh, properly functioning 
vagus nerve and a, and a high enough vagal tone, which is what we are measuring within, a, within heart rate variability, you should always be able to regulate your sympathetic nervous system with, uh, with the inputs from your vagus nerve. Um, is when it's when you actually have a low functioning uh, vagus nerve or a low vagal tone, uh, which would also correlate to a low HRV, that we would see those things um, it's kind of spinning out of control. Um, so, uh, so uh, yes, uh, yeah, you just had I just had that uh, just had that break backwards, but that was it. Uh, right. This is awesome. Uh, so please keep please keep digging in there. Awesome. No, I appreciate that clarification. Um, I always mix it up. So break and break, like for, for the audience that's listening, um, it's B-R-A-K-E. I always think of break as B-R-E-A-K. So if you break the vagus like influence, that's what I was going for when I was explaining that. So vagal break from a- Like your vagus nerve is breaking off yeah, from its input. like it's breaking its <laughs> input. I, I got you, um, yeah. Yeah, no, I love it's, the English language, man. I love it. <laughs> yes, it's like a break in your car when it is on. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a break in the car. Yeah. So that's what Dr. Dave was explaining that I mixed up. Um, so the vagus nerve is the break of the car. The sympathetics are the gas. Yes. Um, so the G-coupled protein receptor is influenced by multiple um, genetics, like genetic loci, loci. Uh, however you want to pronounce it. But the key is, is that genetics play a slight role into this. And this is how we see genetics play their effect on HRV. So this study that I'm looking at now, it was done by um, Ilja Nolte, and it's just titled Genetic Loci Associated with Heart Rate Variability and Their Effects on Cardiac Disease Risk. So if you guys want to go look it up, I highly recommend it. Um, it's got a lot of confusing terms, so uh, definitely just skim through it and don't get lost in the details. But the, the key thing that they found was that three genetic loci, genes that encoded for this GERC protein, played their role in heart rate variability. So they were GNG11, RGS6, and HCN4. Now the GNG11 and the RG6 play a role in GERC, um, whereas the HCN4 plays a role in those HCN receptors I talked about. Um, so they identified these from a like statement statement of fact point of view, like these are affecting HRV, not necessarily like a pathway point of view, but the pathways come into play when they connected this back to these uh, G-coupled proteins. So reading off here, um, they noticed that the G, beta, and gamma heterodimer um, that is going to disassociate and go away. Uh, acetylcholine, of course, is the uh, neurotransmitter that the vagus nerve is going to be using to input onto these uh, receptors. So that's going to inhibit the ongoing depolarization. So the depolarization is going to be occurring in order to get contraction. The vagus nerve hyperpolarizes and repolarizes that memory so that we can go back to rest, so that we can go through another contraction cycle. Um, so I'll just read the sentence off. Uh, in parallel, uh, it acts to actively hyperpolarize the pacemaker cells by activation of GERC 1-4 channel. And by it, it's talking about the um, muscarinic type 2 receptors and the um, vagus nerves input on it in order to hyperpolarize those pacemaker cells. 
Um, so they found this in concert with the HCN channels was the mechanism of action of this vagal uh, tone as well as the sympathetic tone. Um, so this GERC signaling, they found accounts for about half of that HRV um, that we see in the vagus nerve input. Now I mentioned vagal tone and sympathetic tone, and I would love for Dr. Day to explain those terms uh, if it's not already um, been explained to the audience, but um, yeah, go for it real quick. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's a, that's a very interesting study. And I'm, uh, I'm not familiar with, uh, with that particular one, but I'd love to, I'd love to see that. And yeah, it is, uh, you know, genetics very well can play a part um, in, in a lot of our um, health determining factors and, uh, and uh, without a doubt in uh, heart variability as well. Um, however, what is cool about anything genetic is that we, uh, you know, even though it is a, uh, it is a gene, uh, we still do have, you know, we are not, um, we're not destined uh, to, you know, to end up what our well, genetics certainly. say. So it's, uh, it, it is cool, um, you know, that we do have some power over that, even though something's in your genes, it doesn't mean that it's, uh, it's definitely going to be expressed. Um, and even if it were, um, you know, what's, uh, what's also cool is that um, we can combat that to an extent. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it is nice to know those things, uh, to know that you may be prone to something uh, you know, or whatnot. But um, anyway, that is, uh, that, is a really, uh, that is really cool to hear. Um, and, uh, with vagal tone and sympathetic tone. Um, so what we're talking about that with the tone of a system, um, <clears throat> when we refer to vagal tone, which I did use just, uh, just a few moments ago, we're talking about the strength of your vagus nerve, essentially, um, how, how much input does that nerve have, uh, how much pressure, uh, how much output does that nerve actually have going to, you know, uh, your, your heart in this case, um, and, uh, and same with sympathetic tone, it's going to be, what is the activity level? of your sympathetic nervous system. And, um, and those are going to be things that we can see that, uh, that come through in, uh, you know, specifically with HF power, uh, related to our, uh, related to our vagal tone and, uh, and specifically with our LF power more related to, um, more related to sympathetic tone, but truly VLF power is what we're going to see related, uh, really to, uh, to sympathetic tone, especially, when we're talking about uh, short-term measurements, as what uh, is what we're mostly doing here, um, and uh, I just realized that I said HF power and LF power and VLF power, like everybody knew what that was. Um, so I will go through real quick and, uh, and define those. So we're talking about your frequency domain measures of heart rate variability with those, and um, high frequency is going to be your HF power. Uh, LF is going to be your low frequency power. And then VLF is going to be your very low frequency power. And there is actually one more, but it is, uh, it is irrelevant when we are talking about, um, short-term measurements, uh, which again is most of what we're doing here. Um, but that is your ULF power, which is your ultra low frequencies. And that is going to be mostly only dealing with circadian rhythms and things of that nature. So, uh, so really only seen over a 24 hour period. Awesome. No, that's perfect because I was about to use those frequency terms too. And I'm so thankful you uh, just defined it for me. Um, so yeah, so frequencies are huge. And I'm just going to go back to that genetic thing that you were saying. So um, phenotype is always defined by biologists everywhere as being genetics plus environment and then any other extenuating factors that may be thrown in the mix. But mostly we're looking at genetics and environment. Now, this study in particular found that it accounted for 
maybe like 2% of HRV genetics did. So then all the rest is really just environment and lifestyle. Um, that is really awesome to hear. Uh, it, and yes, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the term uh, epigenetics or herd epigenetics uh, oh, in that regard yeah. as well. Yeah. All okay. right. Um, but yeah, that your environment is a, uh, is a large determining factor in what genes actually do get expressed. Um, exactly. uh, but that is, uh, that's so great to hear. Right. And I, and I, I believe, uh, Bruce Lipton, uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton actually, uh, said that there's only, um, I think he said somewhere between like two and 5%, um, you know, estimated, uh, are, are the only true genetic diseases out there. Um, and the remainder is, yeah, it's a, it's a very, very small percentage compared to what you would think, uh, you know, especially when we talk about, um, you know, all these things that are potentially related to family history, which are more related to you do what your dad did. (laughs) Uh, You're in the same environment that your parents were in, uh, you know, a lot of those kinds of things. So there is a, you know, there's a lot of, uh, are you meant within, uh, within some of those genetic determinism things, but yeah. Completely. Yeah, no. And I love that because it means that we can really determine our HRV from what we do. It's not even like our genetics that determine it. Uh, my point in mentioning it was that genetics play a role, albeit a small role, but they play a role in there. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, like I said, genetics and environment play like, um, genetics play a minor role in the environment uh, capacity lifestyle plays a huge role and that's where I was going to segue in uh, to the nutrition section because uh, I did a lot of research recently on the nutrition side of things since we last had um, the last episode of the podcast um, I've looked into a lot of nutrition stuff because one article really piqued my interest here and uh, I, you guys will never guess the title um, but it was about Almond snacking, increasing HRV over a six-week duration. And I thought that was such a title. That's like a hook, line, and sinker kind of research article title. Um, And I'm sorry, can you say that one more time? It was almond snacking? Yeah, so snacking on almonds can increase your HRV. So listeners, if you take one thing away from this podcast, snack on almonds. It's life-changing, literally. Um, But yeah, this... A study looked at whole almonds for six weeks, and they showed that it increases HRV during mental stress situations in healthy adults. So these adults were, um, I read through the whole uh, article, and these adults were completely excluded um, based on the basis of any sort of pathology. These are the healthy adults um, in society, basically, um, meaning they didn't want to corrupt the data with any uh, prior like one of them was myocardial infarctions. And we know that if you have a heart attack once, you're likely to get another one. Uh, your chances of getting another one are higher than someone who's never had one. So they took all pathologies out of the baseline and they showed that it increases HRV. And they did this, did this doing a mental stress test in the lab at uh, halfway markers and after, I believe. And those stress tests demonstrated that adults who snacked on almonds instead of the normal snacks that we all have, uh, cheese puffs, Doritos, and um, Chex Mix, you know, all of those people that snacked on those did worse in the stress test compared to the um, almond snackers. So that's, that's very interesting. And um, I, I guess not surprising that when you compare it to the, 
to the, you know, quote unquote, regular snacks, um, which aren't real food at all. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, so that's, that's a whole other episode right there. I, I, yes, it, indeed it is. Um, so I, I'm imagining the mechanism is uh, is neuroinflammation uh, or what was uh, what did they attribute to anything? Yeah, so almonds in particular, they used, um, and their reasoning for this was because almonds have shown uh, protective, a protective role in terms of cardiovascular disease and oxidative stress. So atherosclerosis, which is a key predicator of just cardiovascular disease and heart attacks in particular, um, cardiac arrest, uh, that's a predicator of having a heart attack, atherosclerosis, and the almonds provide a protective role in that pathology. And so they thought snacking almonds is a good nut. Everyone eats nuts. Like, and I say everyone with the exception of people who are allergic, but nuts are one of those things where like, it's the healthy snack, you know? It's got good fats. It's got those unsaturated fats that we love to talk about. It's got um, whole grain nutrients, a lot of vitamins. I think they listed E as one of those vitamins that's prevalent in almonds. Um, and it's just an overall like healthy snack to have on a regular basis. So they use almonds in this group, but I expanded that. And my whole um, reason for looking into nutrition was this article, because if snacking, snacking on almonds can increase your HIV, well, what else does your diet do? Because it's so intricately, connect, intricately connected into the nervous system that we've been talking about in terms of the cardiac role. Um, but yeah, so to answer your question real quick, protective role, um, almonds, snacking is a regular form of eating, and it, it supplemented the uh, other meals that they had, and it completely replaced any other snacks that they had. So they controlled the diet from that perspective. So uh, was there any control for how often they snacked, or how many times a day, or is it just any time that you felt like you needed to snack, it was just you replace it with almonds? And, and if it didn't say, or you don't know, uh, that that's okay too. I'm just, uh, I'm just very curious as to the, uh, as to the methods there. Um, right. and, uh, I will double check real quick while you. Yeah. Talk. Go for it. It, and I, so almonds, um, in a lot of nuts, I'm not going to say all nuts, but, uh, but a lot of nuts are going to contain those healthy fats, which are, are going to be the omega-3 fats, the omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, and those of course are going to, um, it, as we talked about actually in our, uh, in our book that, uh, that myself, um, Matt and I, uh, and, you know, wrote uh, for um, the heartbeat of business, uh, find it anywhere books are sold, uh, <laughs> find it on Amazon and Audible. Shameless um, book. Yes. Uh, we do talk about, uh, you know, some of the health benefits specifically of using uh, fish oils um, <clears throat> as a supplement to help with uh, heart rate variability. And, um, and here's one natural source of, uh, of some of those oils. Uh, now, the dangerous thing when you get into any kind of nuts and a large volume of snacking is that there is an imbalance between the amount of omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids, uh, which can actually turn them detrimental in the long run. Uh, so you don't want those to be your only source of, uh, of fatty acids. Um, but uh, it doesn't sound like that uh, hurt anybody in this trial. Um, another thing while you're looking that up and we are talking about nuts is, um, is that if you ever see the nut pieces uh, for sale at a store, you'll notice that they are quite a bit cheaper than the whole nuts. 
Um, and that is because these are all the nuts that fell to the bottom of the barrel and were not uh, capable of, uh, of being, uh, you know, a high quality. So, uh, so these literally are just the crush of nuts that, uh, that fell to the bottom of the bags and, uh, and, you know, maybe were swept up off the factory floor. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but regardless, uh, don't go for the nut pieces, uh, when you're buying nuts, uh, pay a little bit more, get the whole nuts whenever possible. Um, and if you can find them refrigerated at a store, even better. Um, and actually that is a great way to store any form of nut is, uh, actually in your refrigerator rather than just in your pantry, because uh, they can go uh, rancid actually. Um, so, uh, I'm sorry, I got into a, a bit of rambling, uh, about that. I got nuts about oh. nuts. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love it. I, I had no idea that nuts were such a bad culprit when it comes to crushed and chopped versus whole. And yeah. the refrigerated part, I didn't know either. So yeah, that's awesome. I'm throwing my nuts in the refrigerator after this podcast. Um, <laughs> so now that I got my next uh, check uh, checklist to do uh, for the rest of the night, uh, I looked it up and they said that snacks usually contribute to about 20, 25% of energy intake. So they based this off of the caloric intake of the participants. So they did a two-week run-in period, uh, normal snacking, whatever the people normally ate. And then after those two weeks, they ran the six weeks and half was either control, half was almond snacking. And then that's when they did the six weeks of almond intervention. Um, and then the control snacks were actually, they detailed it as sweet, savory mini muffins. Um, so that's a very nutritious snack to have in comparison to almonds. Talk about uh, nutrients right there. I like that though. It's, it, sounds, it sounds really good. <laughs> I will note too, this is interesting. And going back to the whole nut conversation that you started, Dr. Dave, um, I'm about to go nuts here. Uh, almond snacks, they were specifically dry roasted, whole, non-salted almonds. So All right. sodium uptake in addition to whatever their normal diet was. And they were dry roasted, which I need to look into this more uh, and find some particular studies that I'll be able to cite. But I've seen stuff that suggests that raw nuts are quite a bit healthier than roasted nuts. And have you come across any of that in um, your studies? I would have thought the exact same as you, Randy. Uh, I would have thought that, uh, that um, you know, a, a more fresh, uh, un untarnished would have been uh, more healthy, but, uh, but, you know, uh, nonetheless, a whole omen, uh, you know, even dry roasted, uh, probably still has a lot more health benefits than a cupcake. So, you know, yeah. oh, for sure. No, and I'm not <laughs> saying anything there because of course, um, but they equated it to the 20% energy ratio, um, <laughs> which is five control muffins using the brand that they use. Um, or 63 grams per um, almond, I guess, some uh, units there. But anywho, they added the almonds in instead. And one more thing about the nuts, definitely yeah. buy organic if you can. Um, yes. I'm a big proponent of that organic food policy only because I've heard from so many doctors and I've done a lot of research on the whole organic debate. And it's significant because those pesticides that they spray these plants with and they grow in the soil that's been sprayed with pesticides, um, it's not good. So for long-term health effects, organic's the way to go. Well, 100%. Um, in to refrigeration. Uh, yes, 100%. And thank you for saying that uh, and bringing that up. Uh, we, 
we all have a part to play in that. Uh, we all vote with our dollars every time we go to the grocery store and, uh, yeah, and, you know, um, and paying that little extra for the organic is, is totally worth it. Uh, cause it pushes big companies to, uh, to want to produce things more organically and hopefully they're doing it in a true organic way. Um, but without a doubt, uh, the long-term health benefits, as you mentioned, uh, are, are just skyrocket there. Um, you know, uh, when you get away from, uh, you know, having, uh, uh, all sorts of, uh, pesticides, herbicides, you know, whatnot sprayed on, uh, sprayed on your foods. And then you are consuming that, um, it, it does have detrimental, uh, health effects. So, um, so without a doubt, always purchase organic whenever possible. And one more note about that, because it just popped into my mind. Epigenetics, you just mentioned epigenetics, organic pesticides, epigenetic role in the maternal uh, fetal relationship. Another yes. podcast, maybe? Yes, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to throw out at least five podcasts, um, things that we could go on and do later. Um, this is great. I love this. So, almonds, takeaway eat almonds, organic, refrigerated, all that fun stuff, and not the chopped up kind that we're at the bottom of the barrel. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. All right. It, it, did you have another, uh, did you have any yeah. other nutrition tidbits? All right. A lot. I'm going to segue into another uh, couple minutes, if that's all right with you. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do, let's do another one. Perfect. All right. So almonds are the main thing that kicked off my nutrition thing. And um, from there, I came up with another 10, 15 articles uh, that provide a substantial um, data from a human perspective as well as an animal model perspective. Um, and in science, there's a lot of animal models. Uh, so for those of you who may not be deeply in, integrated into the research community, science research, whatnot, um, animal models are a huge um, like basis of research data only because it takes away um, a little bit of the ethically um, controversial side of testing and research. So almonds like this were tested on humans, of course, because it's snacking, but they had to go into a lot of um, animal models in order to uh, discover some of the pathogenesis um, of all sorts of cardiovascular diseases. Um, like I mentioned, atherosclerosis was a huge one, as well as the dietary relation to that, and at the very end of the day, HRV. Um, so as I'm going through, some of these are animal models, some are humans. Uh, a couple stood out though, and I mentioned the sodium for a very specific reason, because sodium does play a role in your HRV, as does sugar. So I'll mention the sugar first, because um, I'm one of those people who's in the process of completely weaning off sugar and doing my best to really limit that intake. But they noticed that sugar has a high correlation to decrease HRV. Um, and they used soft drink consumption to actually measure uh, the acute effect on barrel reflex sensitivity and heart rate variability um, throughout this study. So commercially available soft drinks, super high levels of fructose, uh, high fructose corn syrup. And based on previous studies, these authors, um, this was published in Cardiovascular Renal Integration Physiology Journal, uh, Christopher Chapman and uh, company, all of them decided to take this a step further and bring it to the um, economic world uh, where they brought in the uh, soft drinks. So they measured people um, in double-blinded 
trials, um, looked at all of these uh, B2B blood pressures as well as RR intervals, um, which is just, um, sorry, could you clarify that RR intervals are RMSSD, yeah. SDNN, all those terms real quick? Yes, uh, absolutely. Well, I, I wanted to uh, actually do two things there. So, uh, so we can talk about sure. the RR intervals, but you also mentioned baroreceptors. Um, and uh, explain that, yeah. right? Yes, and we want to take a step back to baroreceptors real quick, and uh, and I'm sure you remember those from my class uh, when we, we talked so, about yeah. baroreceptors as it relates to uh, the carotid artery specifically, um, but also uh, within our um, within our aortic arch and uh, and and some other large uh, vessels within the thoracic cavity too. But um, but what we are talking about with um, <clears throat> with a baroreceptor is a pressure receptor. Um, so that is something that is going to be within the, within the uh, wall of the vessels, and they're essentially measuring uh, the moment-to-moment -moment change in pressure in those arteries, so, uh, so blood pressure essentially is what they are monitoring um, to assure that everything is staying in, uh, in proper function, and they're going to react quickly um, to assure that your blood pressure stays in, uh, in, in the range that is appropriate for you. So, uh, so if it starts to go too high, they're going to send signals uh, up to your brain to help reduce the pressure. Uh, so essentially your cardiac output is going to decrease um, and vice versa. Uh, if it starts to go too low, uh, we're gonna get signals to quickly increase that pressure, um, it, which is why we don't pass out when we uh, stand up uh, because of those little guys right there. Um, so that is baroreceptors and actually, uh, your, uh, your baroreceptor range, uh, measured with heart rate variability is your low frequency range. Um, so, uh, we talked about that already, but that is what you are mostly seeing with that. And, uh, and one more fun tidbit, as long as we are going down this road and, uh, and we're talking all about our physiology tonight, um, when you are doing resonance frequency breathing, uh, which is something that we do, uh, which we do through our app. Um, and, uh, something that Randy is doing, uh, on a daily basis for, uh, for the case study that we are going through right now, um, that is exercising that baroreceptor reflex. Um, so it is actually cardiovascular training, um, just by breathing, which is really cool. Um, but that is what you are exercising, which is why you will see a high LF reading during your resonance frequency breathing. Um, so it's a, a, an extremely long explanation for just that one thing, but I, but no, that was perfect. I, but I had fun with it. I, <laughs> um, oh, it's great. I love this. And, and, yeah, I, I, I know you do. I hope everybody listening does as well. Um, and then I, and then you were talking about the RR intervals. So um, everybody's familiar with an EKG or at least seen um, what that looks like. And there is the large spikes that happen yeah, that, that will be happening that represent each heartbeat. And that is called your QRS complex. And the R is the peak, the very peak of that biggest spike. And when you talk about an R to R interval, that is the time distance measured between each of those beats. And that is actually what we are measuring to determine heart rate variability when we are talking about time domain measures. Um, so that is your RMSSD, which is what you are, uh, which is what you are seeing put up as a score uh, for your optimal HRV scores. Um, and then there is also SDNN, uh, which is another uh, time domain measure, um, but uh, not one that we represent um, on your daily readings. You uh, you can see that in your resonance frequency um, recordings. But um, yes, 
Awesome. <laughs> I'm sure if the audience has hung with us thus far, um, these are the people that really um, enjoy this stuff too. Yes. So those are great explanations, Dr. Dave. Thank you. Okay. Um, yeah, that actually fits perfectly because um, you jumped ahead, really explained those baroreceptors frequency relationship, which was my next thing after this. And I'm I stole your thunder. <laughs> no, that was the thunder that I'm glad you stole. <laughs> that was perfect. Um, so yeah, sugar, they found that soft drinks actually decrease HRV and that baroreceptor reflex. And that reflex has to do with the amount of connectivity between those blood vessel um, baroreceptors and your actual um, heart at the end of the day um, through that nervous system complex. Um, and we call it a reflex too, because it doesn't go quite all the way up to the cortical areas as the other things. Like it might send signals there, but the reflex is more or less one of those quick responses. It goes quickly into the integrating center and the spinal cord hops right off and does its reflex, you know, um, like all other reflexes, um, which makes it amazing from a um, diagnostic like standpoint in these studies, because it really shows that acute, quick, inter immediate effect um, of the diet. Uh, so they, they compared the soft drinks to water and found that that barrel reflex was dampened, it decreased, um, and then HRV um, subsequently increased, which is a bad thing. Increased HRV leads to all-cause mortality, cardiovascular disease, and all these uh, horrible pathologies I've been mentioning along it the way. Decreased HRV. I think you just said increased there. Did I say? I'm sorry. Increased HRV is a good thing. Decreased is bad. Yes. In, what am I thinking? Increase. There's something that increased this bad. Um, maybe increased. just sympathetic drive. I'm probably just thinking sympathetic drive. Uh, yes. Yeah. Which would uh, which would lower the HRV. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for um, remedying that. I was probably thinking of LFHF ratio. Does that sound right? That's yes. Right. With uh, and with that, uh, it. Well, yeah, decrease, decrease would be better. Yeah. Right. Uh, decrease HRV, decrease baroreceptor reflex. Um, bad. Soft drinks, bad. Um, that's what they found. And they compared it to water, which is just a perfect control um, for that type of study. And I mentioned the sodium in the almond study because another one found that um, increasing dietary sodium intake can actually dampen that barrel reflex once again, and then affect the vagal um, tone on the HRV in the heart itself in the long run. Um, so I mentioned the non-sodium uh, unsalted dry roasted whole almonds, uh, yeah. because the fact that it was unsalted was actually very key in that study being really accurate in their findings, because had, it, had they added sodium into the mix and had salted almonds, um, they would have probably found skewed results as a result of that, um, because this study took um, sodium administered intravenously as a saline infusion and compared that to dietary sodium. So they had the control, they had the saline, and then they had the dietary sodium, high sodium diet. Um, and those were the three categories, and they found that saline sodium um, actually didn't affect HRV. It was completely neutral, um, oh. similar to the control group. But as soon as you enter it in the diet, um, that diet causes the HRV to decrease, causes the baroreceptor to decrease, lowers that um, LF, 
the low frequency as a result, which um, I'm not sure if they actually measured that, but it's the direct correlation is that LF band uh, to the baroreceptors. So they found that and um, they also um, took it back one step further and looked at cardiovagal control in terms of autonomic regulation. And that has to do with the HRV side of things because high HRV means you're, uh, and that's the LFHF ratio, um, means your vagus nerve is properly connecting to the heart and balancing it all with its inhibitory effects. Like we talked about at the very beginning with all those channels, it's all coming around full circle now. Yes. Um, and the key thing about noting that the vagus nerve as these inputs as inhibitory signals is because the vagus nerve also innervates most of the small intestine and large intestine and all those dietary tracts that um, we're learning about in viscera right now. Actually, yes. this is all fresh stuff in my mind. Um, but that vagus nerve actually sends afferents to those regions of the uh, alimentary tract. And because those afferents are sent there, whatever you eat in your diet goes straight back into the CNS through the vagus nerve. So that's why all your foods get, end up getting really addicting. Like sugars is the most addicting substance um, in the world, I think it was, or at least up there. Um, I remember reading those stats and it was higher than most drugs, which is scary to think about. Um, but it's through those um, neuro, um, I believe they're the neuro uh, enterocytes. I had, had to go back and check the vocabulary that uh, we learned last trimester, but those... That sounds very accurate, but yes. Okay. It sounds fancy, sounds scientific, so it must be accurate. Uh, Neuroenterocytes, um, those cells are going to actually be neurons that are in the actual GI tract, and those are connected to the vagus nerves fibers directly. So it'll send that signal of whatever you're eating. All those molecules will end up being tested by that uh, nervous input, output. So vagus nerve gets altered based on your diet, and then that correlates with HRV because the vagus nerve provides the efferent signaling to that pacemaker. So that's where we see the physiological connection um, between your diet and your heart. And that's why these studies are so perfect to do when it comes to this HRV. And I actually think this will be perfect for our study as well, including dietary um, assessments uh, or some sort of like control management, I guess. Absolutely. Um, that would be a, a great insight to have uh, to factor those things in. But, um, but yeah, that's, uh, that is such a cool thing, you know, that our vagus nerve not only is uh, controlling our heart, but it is, um, it is a primary feed into a uh, majority of our digestive system. Um, you know, I, I don't know what they label it as exactly, but like seven eighths of it or something like that. Um, uh, yeah, uh, with, with the exception of uh, of the very end of your colon um, yeah. and the uh, your <clears throat> yes, that is where it ends. Um, and yeah, those uh, neuroenterocytes uh, where where we would be seeing that uh, flex back up, um, where we would be getting the feedback uh, from, uh, and uh, and then the I, and then I think that's right. By the way, I didn't I haven't checked my notes yet, so don't. <laughs> Yes, yes. Check your notes, please. Um, but uh, but what what we would uh, what we would see, especially when you talk about addiction, with that, um, that's going to be a lot of the uh, a lot of the dopamine effect uh, that we're going to have as a result yeah, of uh, of that sugar kick as well. 
Um, but yeah, man, that's, uh, that's, that's really awesome stuff. Uh, and, and to recap some of this, um, you know, so with that, um, we know that the sugary things are going to be a negative for our heart rate variability, as well as for our health overall. Um, so it's not just maybe this stuff is bad for you, but no, it, it absolutely is. Um, I find that very interesting um, that intravenous sodium is not impactful on your um, heart rate variability, whereas dietary, excuse me, um, sodium is. And I'd love to, uh, I'm going to noodle on that for a little bit to think about the exact mechanism there. Um, and I don't know if they offered one in that paper, um, but, uh, but that is, uh, that is very interesting. Um, it's and, a very long paper, so I'd have to go and, take, <laughs> and search back through. Read through it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, the, this is, this is awesome, man. And, um, and I mean, if you're up for it and, uh, you know, we're getting some positive feedback on these things, it would be really cool to do, uh, to do a regular research recap on, uh, on some things that you are finding, um, as we're going through all of this. So, um, so this is very much appreciated. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. I really love doing this. Um, it's perfect enough to leave it off on actually. Um, if you don't mind, can I have one more minute just to recap that back to one more thing I wanted to connect that to. So sodium inputs into those vagal uh, afferent fibers. Um, And I believe the distinction is foregut, midgut, hindgut, all that embryology stuff I've studied for my tests coming up. Um, But I like biochemistry and it sticks better for me. So um, that that input through those enterocytes um, affects the cardiac flow. And actually that's where we get all the addiction through the dopamine and serotonin. Um, Since the anoric um, enteric nervous system uh, is most of the nervous system in our body. And I'd love to talk about that for a whole podcast too. Um, and for those of you listening, uh, enteric nervous system is uh, going to regulate our gut. Um, but I'm also, sorry guys, I'm adding yeah. more terms. Oh, no, no, you're, you're fine. And also has large inputs uh, from the sympathetic and, uh, and parasympathetic into that. Um, but enteric nervous system is a third branch of the autonomic nervous system. Um, that, uh, that primarily runs our gut, um, and anything with that term entero, I know we said neuroentero, we said entero, uh, sites, we said entero, yeah. this and that, uh, and that's uh, anything with that term is referring to the gut. Completely. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, man, I'm a, on a roll with all these terms. Um, yes. but that last connection I wanted to make really was just saying that, uh, what we eat really affects our nervous system because that loops back around, like you mentioned to the dopamine and, uh, serotonin production is primarily in the gut. So if we don't, we're not producing that serotonin because of our diet messing with the nervous system and the way it's outputting these hormones, that's a problem, right? And it loops back around to all those emotional centers. And guess what we talked about at the very beginning? Emotional centers in that cortical area of the brain. We talked about the prefrontal cortex. We talked about the amygdala. We talked about the cingulate gyrus. We talked about all those super uh, emotional structures, the limbic system. That's where this all ties back to. So we are what we eat. And that what we eat, we can see this physiological connection between what we eat all the way back up to the brain in those cortical centers. And that's the last connection I want to make because this whole thing comes full circle. That, that is so awesome. I, you, you really did wrap it all up very nicely there. Um, Thank you. I love those connections. Thank you so much. And, uh, and interesting for Thank you, you for um, 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but uh, very quickly, interesting for you and all of our guests, um, actually, Ina, um, so, uh, so Dr. Kazan, um, she, uh, she actually has a paper, uh, and I believe it states that it is uh, over 90% of the body's uh, serotonin is produced in the gut um, as well. And, uh, and, you know, obviously, I know you can see that other places as well. Um, but I know that she is quoted in, uh, in some of her own research saying that. Um, yeah, so I love that percentage. It's, it's crazy to think about. Yes, uh, absolutely. And, uh, and if your diet is incorrect and your guts aren't working correctly as a result, um, then you are not as happy and alive and with it in this world as you possibly could be. So, uh, exactly. yeah. one more That's reason. What you're all about, right? Yes, absolutely, man. <laughs> All right. Well, that'll be a whole nother podcast. That would be fun to do someday. I'd love to talk about that from a naturopathic perspective, because that's what Alicia and I, um, we love to explore in that naturopathic um, framework and perspective. Yeah. Well, well, we'd love to do it. All right. Well, thank you, Randy. And uh, and thank you, Dr. Dave. Yeah. And we'll, we'll do another one of these again soon. Awesome.